Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'd like to see the Conservatives get a real kicking, both in Wakefield and in Tiverton and Honiton. Often the measures, they didn't cost anything, but obviously the costs were actually borne by children. For Boris Johnson and his Downing Street entourage, that the wine and the song, like the seasons, have all gone. One piece of good news to start is there's a vacancy for an ethics advisor at number 10. Shall we apply jointly? Job share. One. We have left off. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. <laughs> that was the big numbers of our youth, Alison, wasn't it? The one-hit wonder Terry Jacks sang that iconic number in 1974. The B-side was an even weirder song called Put the Bone In, something about the death and burial of a beloved canine pet. Back in 1974, Alison, inflation was 15% or more, and we could be heading there again. The latest numbers show the headline consumer price index in May was 9.1% higher than a year ago. The alternative retail price index put inflation at 11.7%. But the producer price index, Alison, which you know all about, in fact, you're the world's leading authority (laughs) on this seemingly arcane inflation measure, that's drumroll, 22.1% up compared to May 2021. 22.1%. That's a seriously authentic 1970s inflation number as authentically 70s as the Bay City Rollers on Space Hoppers racing Kojak on a chopper (laughs) with Ron Pickering doing the commentary. And as Planet Normals released, Alison, the Tories faced two extremely tricky by-elections in the Yorkshire seat of Wakefield and in Honiton and Tiverton in the West Country. There's plenty happening, and I know you've got thoughts not just on the cost of living crisis, not just on the train strikes and the NHS, but also on the Tories. So how do you think they'll fare? How do you think the Prime Minister will fare? in this double by-election test. Seasons in the sun? (laughs) What was that thing about your bone? (laughs) The B-side of season in the sun was put the bone in, I remember, because it was a cause of much sort of fanar, fanar. (laughs) I bet it was. But actually, it's about somebody burying their pet dog. (laughs) Put the bone in. (laughs) Just making this stuff up. I'm not. I'm going to out-trivia you now. So, Seasons in the Sun, originally written by Jacques Abrel and 1961, and the song was called Le Moribond, about a man dying. Yeah, the man who's going to die, that's right, yeah. Which brings us neatly to the UK economy, doesn't it? So, one piece of good news to start is there's a vacancy for an ethics advisor at number 10. (laughs) 
Should we apply jointly? Job share. We'll apply jointly. I think all you have to say is marvellous wallpaper, darling, and just, you know, sign it off, don't you? I was away last week in Turkey, had a lovely time. Now, there's a country with 74% inflation rate, Halligan, so that does give you something to talk about. It was funny coming back to the UK. I just feel that This is a very rudderless country at the moment. I mean, apparently we've got a government. I just don't feel they're in charge. So coming on to the by-elections, which will be happening today, actually, when Planet Normal goes out, I'd like to see the Conservatives get a real kicking, actually, both in Wakefield and in Tiverton and Honiton. They've got a very big majority there. We remember it's Neil Tractor-Porn Parish's constituency, over 24,000 majority. I think the Lib Dems are breathing down their necks. And why would I like to see them slapped around the face, really? I just think there's massive complacency what I see with the rail strike, we can talk about the prospect of a general strike, oh joy, coming up. I see just playing politics with it, really. I see Boris, Prime Minister, question time. It's the perfect wedge issue, isn't it, Liam? It's strikes. Boris can stand there, accuse Labour MPs of holding hands with Arthur Scargill on the picket line. These disgraceful Labour MPs supporting strikers, not strivers. You can imagine Linton Crosby's little assistant who came up with strikers, not strivers. I'm not sure it convinced it's a very good wedge issue for the Conservatives. I think there is a surprising amount of public sympathy for the strikers. And I would say, you would say, I'm sure it's incredibly selfish of the union to do this to the country right now at a time of crisis. But I also think through no fault of their own, working people are facing these drastic increases in their bills. And while some of it is down to global forces, a lot of it is incompetence, grotesque complacency by the Bank of England. How long, co-pilot, have you been warning them about inflation? Did they listen? Oh, no, don't worry, old boy. It's transitory, transitory. Well, it certainly isn't bloody transitory. So I'm wondering how competent they are, really. It's not that long ago that Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, called for people to show restraint when requesting wage increases. Boris, you'll recall, Liam, slapped him down, said that the government wanted pay to rise, high wages, high growth, whoopee-doo. And look at that now. Look at where we've got. So I'm feeling countries in the parlour state and that the government hasn't got a grip and that I think they will certainly lose Wakefield resoundingly this week. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they got a nasty shock in Devon. I think a lot of that is fair. I think the messaging on inflation has been ridiculous. I think the Bank of England, faced with an open goal last week of raising interest rates by at least half a percent, 50 basis points after the central bank in the US, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 75 basis points, three quarters of a percent. They faced that open goal. They hit the corner flag. I think the Bank of England is steeped in groupthink. The insiders who are basically treasury apparats are the opposite of intellectually independent. They are careerists who are desperately trying not to rock the boat. Independent central banking only works if you have a broad range of views on the committee steeped with people who do want to rock the boat because they've got the intellectual clout to do so, because politicians always look to the next week's headlines. They always want to put off what you need to do to 
get on top of inflation and put those price rises, put that genie back into the bottle. We have been woefully behind the curve. People like me would be fully entitled to get really angry about this. And I am pretty angry about it, having been disparaged by not just the Bank of England, but a lot of the so-called commentariat who waffle on about economics, knowing very little about economics. I'm not saying that there aren't price pressures across the world. Of course, there are price pressures across the world. But the Bank of England is now wheeling out its glove puppet commentators to say, oh, but it's all about Ukraine. It isn't all about Ukraine. The producer price index was already in double digits the month before Ukraine. Inflation, the consumer price index was already at a 30-year high before the war in Ukraine. This has been coming for a long time. And I think on this by-election, clearly they're going to lose Wakefield. I think they may have a chance of just about holding on in Honiton and Tiverton. They got a particularly good candidate in Honiton and Tiverton, Helen Herford, who is very much a local person and well respected, but it will be by the skin of their teeth and on a much reduced majority. I think what really strikes me now is the question of where the economy's going to go. The inflation number came out yesterday, that's Wednesday. It was 9.1%. Well, that's up from 9%, the figure the month before. That was the year to April. It's 9.1% during the year to May. But the really big number, the really important number, and I think, again, we've been at the forefront of focusing on this, is the producer price index, Alison, which I know is something that you've really latched onto and got interested in. Mm-hmm. Because what we're seeing is the cost of the inputs that firms use to generate the goods and services that they then sell us, the cost of those inputs are up 22.1% during the year to May. And yet the cost of the outputs that firms then sell to wholesalers, which they then sell on to retailers and sell on to us, are up just 15%. So that difference shows that producers are absorbing a lot of these cost pressures. The difference between 15.1% and the consumer price index of 9.1% shows that retailers and wholesalers are also absorbing a lot of those price pressures. Competition is happening along the supply chain to try and shield consumers from those price pressures to try and keep prices as low as possible in the shops. But these producer price index numbers, both the producer price index for inputs and for outputs, demonstrate very, very clearly there are big pressures still in the supply chain. And they will ultimately, to some extent at least, be expressed. And that's why I think we could see even consumer price index inflation a number that's much lower than I think most in people's inflation experiences. I think that could go to 10, 15, possibly percent in the next few months. I'm starting to feel it's a bit scary. You know, I just got a kind of bad feeling about it. I've got a list of questions for Liam from your co-pilot. I'm wondering whether we could see something approaching a general strike. More than 800,000 workers have been or in line to be balloted over industrial action. We've seen 
criminal barristers making noises about strikes. And I think that that's little known, Liam, that, you know, we all, we all know about the big high earning tax barristers and corporation barristers, but these are criminal barristers and many of them are probably not earning much more than an Aslef train driver. We've got the bin men, local bus drivers, possibly the teachers. I mean, you know, it's been minutes since the teachers have been on furlough, isn't it? So they're all champing at the bit to get out again. Junior doctors, we've got these pay review boards about to report. But it seems to me, you know much more about this than I do, but we seem to be just this totally inconsistent response from the government. So we just heard this week that the state pension and benefits are set to rise in line with inflation. I think we're talking about 6 million people and that decision will cost taxpayers about 20 billion quid. Meanwhile, number 10 is insisting that the working population must accept pay rises below inflation for the greater good. So which is it? We've got Boris and Rishi insisting on the need for fiscal discipline On the other hand, they can't explain why allowing pay to rise in line with inflation. You can't let pay rise in line with inflation, but you can if it's people on state pensions and benefits. What sense does that make, Copilot? I did think that was politically rather bizarre. The government's reinstating the so-called triple lock, which means in effect that pensions go up by the rate of inflation when the rate of inflation is higher than the average increase in wages or 2.5%. And it clearly is because it's 9 or 10%. I mean, why is the government doing that? Yes, of course, there's some pensioner poverty in the UK and pensioners in particular difficulty, they are, in theory at least, and for the most part it happens, assisted by particular targeted benefits aimed at them. But in terms of the basic state pension, you know, a lot of our pensioners are actually pretty well off. They're often sitting on housing wealth. They often have some savings, certainly compared to younger people trying to start a family, trying to get on the housing ladder themselves, just about managing families. Again, no one's saying that life is rosy for every pensioner in the UK, particularly as winter approaches. And crikey, the days are getting shorter now, co-pilot. I know, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievably. I haven't even found the suntan lotion in my house from last year <laughs> or before lockdown. It's probably all congealed now. Well, apparently we had a heat wave, but as one of my readers said, it was more of a heat nod than a heat wave. <laughs> a heat eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> seemed, seemed to last about seven hours where we were. Well, that's why I talked about seasons in the sun, trying to sort of get us into a more summery mood feeling the sand between my toes but we're still a long way from that in the Halligan household and already the days are getting shorter you mentioned the general strike we Mm. need to make sure we don't engage in in hyperbole right so the general strike happened in 1926 Britain was literally at risk of becoming a communist state right the Russian revolution had just happened there was major political turmoil in the air it was a dogfight between capitalism and Marxism, Leninism. So we're not at that stage. And I don't think we're even, though I was one of the very first people to start talking about the 70s in this economic cycle. We're not in a 1970s situation in the sense that back then over 50% of the workforce was unionised, particularly the private sector workforce was very heavily unionised compared to now. Now it's about 25% of the workforce is unionised. Having said that, A lot of the public sector is unionised and unions are increasingly militant. I think we saw 
a really nasty, if I may use that word, and I think I should, side to some of the leadership of the teaching union. Certainly many mm. of my friends who are teachers don't feel that the teaching union speak for them. I think they were particularly quick to talk about everything to do with their member safety and nothing at all to do with all respect to many of the brilliant teachers we have in this country, nothing at all to do with the welfare, let alone the education of the children they're meant to be teaching. There are plenty of champagne socialist barristers who want to burnish their credentials with their trendy kids by going on strike. They've paid off their mortgages, probably got three or four properties and a nicely stocked seller. They can afford a bit of strike action, give them something to talk about at dinner parties in the future. <laughs> we could even see some kind of strike action in other parts of the public sector too. And it's just awful for ordinary people who've been through COVID lockdown and they're going through now this cost of living crisis. We're meant to be in this V-shaped recovery <laughs> with the sunlit uplands of post-pandemic Britain. And yet we keep getting hammered by wave after wave of bad news. And you'll know, Alison, my GB News show on the money, I talk to small business owners all the time. Small businesses that employ two thirds of the British workforce that account for more than half of all commercial activity, they are getting absolutely whacked by this cost of living crisis. There are no energy caps for firms. And if you're not a massive firm that can hedge your energy and deal directly with market traders and so on, if you're somebody just ringing up some call centre somewhere trying to do a deal. Those small businesses are getting whacked. They're being pushed into deals for two or three years. So even if prices come down for energy, they won't benefit from those price reductions. There's a corporation tax rise coming down the chute from 19% to 25%. They've handled those national insurance increases. Everywhere they look, they see tax and regulation that's holding them back. We should be nurturing and cherishing these small and medium-sized enterprises. They are the engine room of the British economy. They are the kind of companies that innovate and produce technological advances that drive us forward. And the government is not helping them nearly enough. And that worries me because if a conservative government isn't helping small and medium-sized enterprises, what is it for? But we haven't got a conservative government, have we? And I think that's been pretty clear for a long time. And I think part of the cause of anger, mounting anger, we've got a Planet Normal listener who's canvassing for the Conservatives in Wakefield. He's sending me increasingly dismayed bulletins. He said this week that the returns from the door knocking said that of confirmed Conservative voters, only one in three said they were likely to vote Conservative. So that's two thirds, Liam who on no account are going to vote Conservative. And the things that crop up most on the doorstep, they're very disappointed in Boris. Like you've always said, they don't much, most of them don't much care about Partygate. They'd like to see tax cuts. They want firmer control of the cost of living. So there are an awful lot of really dismayed Conservative voters out there. And all I see with this government, it's like they're on some sort of runaway little dodgy van chucking bits of meat out the back. Boris just sort of hurling bits of beef burger at people. Here's a bit of red meat here. Here's a bit of red meat there. And now the plan is obviously to drive the wedge with Labour. Oh, Starmers, you know, union lover on the picket line with Arthur Scargill, by the way, Halligan. Where's, you know, I thought he was, is he come out of the NUM crypt, Arthur? 
a zombified union leader. <laughs> I actually met Arthur Scargill once. I was a Financial Times reporter yeah. uh, covering the Barnsley East by-election and I turned up at some rally somewhere and I saw him there. <laughs> and, and I had a chat with him and he's always got an eye for a press photographer. He got his face in the paper. And then after he went, <laughs> some extremely wise old lady came up to me and she says, he's got a big mouth and a big house. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't say I'd got one of my ill-fated crushes on Mick Lynch of the RMT, but he's straight out of central casting, isn't he, for Railway Union Baron. And I think he's playing havoc with the government. They haven't got a line, have they? I mean, you, you, you made the point that compared to the 70s, we do have very low trade union membership. But I don't know, how are they going to keep a lid, Liam, on this public sector pay? Because the fact is, is even if they're offering these 2 to 3% pay rises, that's not going to touch the sides of the amount. You know, it's it's a real decrease, isn't it, in their, in their wages. So what are they going to do? At what point are they going to say, there's going you've said this to me, haven't you, co-pilot? You've said there's going to be real pain ahead, isn't there? This is, there's no avoiding it. And we have a government that only wants to sprinkle good news popularity, la-di-da, all that. And there isn't going to be good news or popularity. It's going to be really, really tough, I think. Let's be completely clear. Compared to how people lived in the 1920s or even in the 1970s, which we both remember, Britain is unrecognisably better off and the vast majority of people's lives are unrecognisably more prosperous than they were. We do have a decent benefit system. Of course, it's patchy in places. Of course, unfortunately, people fall through the cracks. But if the government plays its cards right and doesn't do really stupid things that stoke up inflation even more, if the Bank of England climbs on top of this problem, the pain can be relatively contained and reasonable in a historic context in terms of how even the people that suffer most in our economy, the pain that they have to endure. There's no need for anyone at all to starve in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There's no need for anyone at all to be deprived of the very basics, given our welfare state, given our charitable sector. Of course, it's easy for me, a relatively wealthy person to say that. But that is the reality. We can't talk ourselves into some kind of deep, deep depression. And I feel that very strongly. Because of course, in the end, it's business sentiment and consumer sentiment and entrepreneurial vim that will drive us out of this problem. And Britain is world class under all those headings. We have the ability to drive this economy forward and grow our way out of trouble as long as the people in charge of policy don't do particularly stupid things. But let's be completely clear, it needs leadership. You need leaders, particularly a cabinet and a prime minister, who are willing to discuss and describe what's happening and to give us all a direction of travel that the majority of people believe in so we can plot a way forward and out of this predicament that we're in. An economy, it's partly a psychological recovery that we have to make. It's a shocking blow, Alison, that you know we did so well relatively in terms of the pandemic to get our population vaccinated, to 
drive ourselves towards a V-shaped recovery, as I've often said. For that not to happen really is difficult. And the government at a point like this needs to show competence and professionalism. And that's not what we are seeing. And that's a major reason why people are so upset. Yes, of course, Partygate matters at the edges and to certain households, it matters and will always matter for the rest of their life, given that they will have particular grievances and particular instances of real human suffering. But I think what the vast majority of people want is a well-run, relatively low-tax, relatively small-state economy, a small-c conservative government that actually provides an environment for businesses to flourish. The problem is, it's not just Boris Johnson, even Rishi Sunak. They just don't seem to get that. I wonder what's what's holding them back, though. What is it? Because... My faith in them is destroyed now, basically. And I would have counted myself as a, a really mainstream conservative supporter. And I feel really strongly that we need a new leader now. I think that's really telling, Alison, not only because you're sort of instinctively a conservative voter, though obviously, you know, we've both voted for various parties yeah. over the years. But also, you know, you are a really important national newspaper columnist, particularly for conservative voters. It reminds me again of that song, we had joy, we had fun, we had seasons (laughs) in the sun. And it may be, Alison, that for Boris Johnson and his Downing Street entourage, that the wine and the song, like the seasons, have all gone. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. This week, we have return visitors to Planet Normal. Liz Cole and Molly Kingsley are two mums who founded the campaigning group Us For Them during the first lockdown. Liz and Molly were aghast at the way the needs and the rights of children were trampled by adults in the pandemic panic. Us for them lobbied on issues like the reopening of schools and pressed for data on unscientific measures like the asymptomatic testing of healthy kids. Concerned that what was done to children is now in danger of being airbrushed from history, Liz and Molly have written a powerful book called The Children's Inquiry, How the State and Society Failed the Young During the COVID-19 Pandemic. I began by asking these two avenging angels, what motivated you to write it? We began to feel that there seems to be a desire already for policymakers to move on from this disaster that has been created and caused by the pandemic response 
on children, but moving on and almost brushing under the carpet what's happened and also why it's happened isn't really an option for us, we don't feel, if we are to really look in the mirror and be an honest reflection of what's happened as a society, how have adults collectively failed children so catastrophically and really look into that in a way that we didn't feel confident necessarily in an official inquiry was going to do. But importantly, to look ahead to the future as well and think about actually what needs to be put in place to really safeguard children's interests in the future so that this can never happen again. Molly, I saw a scientist on Twitter who said that he reckoned in two years you wouldn't be able to find a single person in his community who had supported the closure of schools. As Liz said, there is this danger, isn't there, of the shameful attempt to brush the shame under the carpet? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think, you know, you can understand why that is, because particularly with school closures, they were an indiscriminate measure that have caused untold damage to an entire generation of children. And, you know, we now have a situation where one in four children at age 11 are obese, where I think it's 46% of reception year kids are not ready for school. We've also got a situation where one in four children are regularly absent, according to the Children's Commissioner. That's 1.7 million children. We broke children's education and I think we felt it was critical to get a record down, as, as Liz says, so that that can't happen again. Something that listeners may have forgotten, and you bring this out in the book, is that at Christmas 2021, while adults were planning festivities, councillors and schools were busy cancelling nativity plays, fates, concerts for the young for the second year running. And then in the summer of 2021, we had packed stands at Wimbledon, huge crowds at Euro 2021. How do you account, Liz, for that double standard? Really, the whole response has been characterised by that hypocrisy and inequity. I think really it's because of who's making the decisions here. Who are the people who are making the decisions, making them from their offices in the councils or in government? They were not directly seeing the impact of that. And I don't think they necessarily understood how consequential those things were. I think there's a real tendency by many adults to really dismiss the rites of passage and the events in children's lives. These may seem like trivialities, but they're not trivialities because they're the things that as adults we look back on and we remember them. And it's a part of our community. It's a part of the fabric of our lives. So I think it's a lack of recognition, actually, of how important it is, but also the impact of uncertainty a continued uncertainty on children of always having the rug pulled out from under them. And one thing that I've said before was a friend of mine whose daughter had said, let's not look forward to anything because then you can't be disappointed. And that's a horrible feeling to instill in children. And I think the consequences of that repeated uncertainty is something that we haven't really seen and putting themselves first. I think adults have just put themselves first throughout, I'm afraid to say. Liz, it strikes me that we had a very weak education secretary in Gavin Williamson 
and strong teaching unions. Do you think that that was part of the adult selfishness that you describe so well in the book? Yeah, I think it was one one feature of that, certainly. I think it was a sense that this was a wider conflict with history there. You know, this is about children. What what do children need? A lot of it was framed, not never framed in terms of children's welfare. From very early on, school closures weren't really considering the impact on children's welfare. It was much more about the staff in the schools, which is legitimate, obviously, legitimate concerns initially about safety. But actually, schools are not just any other place. They're not any other setting. They're special places they're not a mass gathering it really struck me that you know you guys I mean there were some men involved but it was a group of mums mainly and we had a lot of male political leaders I mean there was hardly a peep out of any side Molly wasn't that was that a shock to you that there was hardly anyone I mean who was speaking up you could almost count them on the fingers of two hands couldn't you really yeah I mean it's been a huge shock how completely our political system has failed children. And I think, you know, one of the things that I know Liz and I have reflected on is until 2020, we were both fairly apolitical. And, you know, we now realise that was a really fortunate place to be. It's just been eye-opening, actually, to see how little safeguard there is within the political system. There were a few, have been consistently a few good politicians, you know, really speaking up. But you've had this perception that at every point they've gone against the tide. And actually, you know, let's be honest, like five or 10 or even 20 politicians speaking up in a room of whatever it is, 670 or 80, you know, it's not enough, is it? Something else that comes out in the book, Liz and Molly, is that schools are not just about education. They perform this vital safeguarding role, don't they, for the most vulnerable children. And we saw at least two children who, in my mind, died because of lockdown, were killed because of official policies. And let's pause to remember Arthur, little Arthur Labinjo Hughes and Logan Mwanga. If they had been going to school their parents would not have been able to torture them and eventually kill them, would they? No. And I I mean, I think for us, the most shocking thing here is that all of this was known, Alison. So, you know, the world rightly expressed outrage on hearing of these awful, awful, you know, murders. But actually, they should surprise no one because that this would happen was written in black and white. It was put in reports that were put in front of SAGE and it was either not looked at or ignored. And I think that for us is the most shocking thing. None of this was not known. Liz, I was just going to come to that. So one of the book's bombshells, if you like, is you both discovered a report written in April 2020, which said that this closure of schools was putting not just education seriously at risk, Two thirds of parents were already warning about their children's mental health. But this report, written by four academics and a civil servant on SAGE, that's the government's scientific advisory group for emergencies. Liam always likes it when I mention that, said the risk to 30,000 most vulnerable children had increased significantly. And it called for data to be urgently collected on whether child suicides and other abuse was rising. Now, Liz, you learned, didn't you, that this study had been quietly released as an annex to another report 
and didn't appear to have been discussed with the other scientists on SAGE. That's right. We couldn't find any evidence that this had actually been discussed during that SAGE meeting. And the fact that this was an annex and not the top of the report, we found to be absolutely shocking. And I think one of the most upsetting parts of that report for me was the piece on child suicide, where they write in a very dry way, one of the areas we need to gather more data is on the impact on child suicide. And if we just pause for a moment and think, what does that actually mean in a context where we've talked throughout this pandemic of precautionary principle and to say we're going to wait for data to come through about child suicide. What we're actually saying is we are prepared to wait for those harms to occur for children. And I think that sickens me, honestly. Now, you both say that the toll our public health interventions took on children was not only predictable, but predicted. But there so far has been only the most meagre acknowledgement of the gravity of the harm. Now, we did see Professor Chris Whitty admitting that lives could be cut short because of this huge rise in obesity amongst children. But that's hardly an apology. I don't know about you two, but I was pleased to hear Nadim Zahawi, now the Secretary of State for Education, say closing schools was a mistake. How pleased have you been with that and how far do you think it still falls short? I mean, like you, I think we were pleased. It was, you know, it was welcome. By itself, it's meaningless. You know, actions speak a lot louder than words. If government, if Nadine means that there, you know, there is a bill that Robert Halfen, who's chair of the Education Select Committee, has put forward. There is a bill that can be backed by government. It is there. It is waiting. Molly, what does that say, that bill? It recognises actually the reality that for the reasons we've talked about, schools are essential infrastructure. You know, a, a school is just as important to a young person's life as perhaps a hospital to an older or an unwell person. Like that is the learning or one of the learnings from this pandemic. And that bill recognises that it would designate schools as essential infrastructure and it would put in place legal safeguards that you would have to go through a higher barrier. So a separate vote of parliament and also the children's commissioner would have to essentially acquiesce in it. It would provide more protection and it would also really crucially, because of the involvement of the children's commissioner, mean that someone... (laughs) who had actually children's interests at heart was involved in that key, key decision. Liz, I was astonished, and I know a lot of Planet Normal listeners said the same, that the official COVID inquiry, which is headed by Baroness Hallett, until you guys started kicking up rough, it wasn't even going to look at any damage to children apart from the the problems it had caused for education. I mean, is that something, you a gap that you hope the book will address and indeed put more pressure on the official inquiry. Absolutely. And I think the narrowness of that, again, it characterises the way that we are continuing to talk about how we come through from the pandemic. The fact that the terms were so narrow to us boded very ill for what the inquiry was actually going to do. And while it's now been accepted that that will be broadened, again, I'm afraid we don't have a huge amount of confidence because it didn't not get off to a good start while we do welcome the change. But it's not the only place where children have effectively been written out of events. In an inquiry like this, really children, given their limited role 
in the pandemic itself should have been front and centre from the start. And it's a myopia, really, that we don't necessarily see having been addressed, I'm afraid. Something that's still ongoing, which I know bothers you, it certainly bothers me, is the pushing still of COVID vaccines for children, which absolutely appalls me. But there's also the other more nuanced point you make in the book, which is that it's it's had an impact on other actually critical vaccinations, which can lead to the deaths of children like measles. Liz? Yeah, so I think a lot of this, for me, comes down to trust and transparency and providing proper information that is it's transparent, mm. it's presented neutrally, it's not presented in a coercive way or that's seeking to incentivise parents and families. And that really is the bedrock of public health, trust. You know, my children have had all of their routine immunisations yes. um, because I trust what the JCVI, what the public health authorities tell us. And many, many parents do that. But I think when you have this level of obscurity around the communications. I think that's incredibly damaging in the long run, again. And it's a short-sightedness here, I think, that I do feel is going to come back to bite in the end because you know public health is important, but it, it does require mutual trust and proper communication. I'm sure you guys are picking this up on social media. I'm already hearing the dreaded drumbeat of doom towards the autumn. And that COVID safetyism seems to have been very, very hard to expunge from our institutions, from universities, from schools. Are you worried that in the autumn, when obviously COVID cases will rise, as they'll rise for all respiratory viruses, are, are you at all worried that we'll be plunged back into, oh, let's just wear masks just in case, let's have some social distancing, let's have some testing just in case. Liz? Yeah, absolutely I am, because I think the issue here is where you bring in these interventions, as Molly said earlier, without having properly looked at the evidence and presented the evidence, it's very difficult to build an off-ramp for it. So it's always there as an acceptable lever because you haven't actually evaluated it in any way. It's purely mm. often to us, it seemed to be purely theatre and often the measures, for example, masks that were actually, they didn't cost anything, but obviously the, because the costs were actually borne by children. So yes, by children. Yeah, I am very concerned about it. And I think that, again, it comes back to that fear, the stoking of fear is going to be incredibly hard to dissipate without honesty. So it, it does come back to that honesty and the effects of that lack of transparency play into now the, these restrictions and, and measures, which will be like a shadow in the background, I fear. Liam and I will have your backs on Planet Normal when you're getting all that nasty horrible trolls attacking you. Molly, what would you like the book, what would you like the children's inquiry to achieve? I think it would be good if as a society we could recognise actually that what, what we've done over the last two years is astounding. We've, we've broken the social contract as it relates to children. Adults are meant to protect children and actually we've asked them to shoulder a burden 
to protect adults. And I think until we have that recognition, it's going to be very hard to move on. I think were it to achieve that, I think we may then be able to have a conversation about what needs to be done to make it up to those children. You know, there is hope. There is a growing consensus, I think, around the fact that actually our education system has failed, that we need, you know, more wholesale reform of that, that children should be first at education. You know, this is sort of huge human capital that that if we don't do something very urgently, we'll, we'll lay to waste. But I think until we face up to the magnitude actually of the harm we've caused children the next conversation is not going to be on the footing it needs to be so I think that's what we would like to achieve with the book. Well speaking for Liam and I you have been two of the great heroines of the pandemic and everyone supporting us for them in in, in the teeth of some pretty unpleasant opposition and all those ghastly people who say oh children are so resilient aren't they well not really no it turns out they're not so just want to say huge thanks to you a little bit of news co-pilot Pearson mainly inspired by you guys is going to start training as a counsellor for children and adolescents I'm embarking on a four-year open university course so I can be out there trying to help tackle some of that mental health problem that you outline so eloquently in the book. I feel adults now need to really start making up to children for everything you've described absolutely brilliantly in the fantastic The Children's Inquiry. Molly and Liz, thank you so much for coming on Planet Normal again. That was a fabulous interview, Alison, and The Children's Inquiry by Liz Cole and Molly Kingsley two of the founders, of course, of the Us For Them campaign group, is out on the 30th of June, and it's published by Pinter and Martin, available now on pre-order. And if ever, Alison, there's a book that deserves a wide readership, it's that, because incredibly, we still don't know anything about this post-COVID public inquiry, when it's going to happen. Even the terms of reference are still up in the air. Yes, it's... It was quite an emotional experience, Liam, reading the book because there's already so much we've forgotten. They talk about, you know, remember those bubbles at school and children, even if they were perfectly healthy, nothing wrong with them, sent home. Some of them were isolated five times (laughs) for not being ill. Absolute madness. And the book is full of very, very strong testaments from children and from their parents about what this was like. And I do have high hopes that this bill that Molly and Liz talked about, which would cast schools as critical infrastructure. So absolutely not to be closed again as Sweden, in fact, never closed schools for the under 16s to be seen as vital to keep schools open. It's funny, Liam, this week I was having a little rant in the column, you may have noticed, (laughs) talking about another really, uh, an area of concern that sort of taps into this sort of indifference of the state, the bullying of the state. And this was a review into leadership in health and social care. I decided to write about this review into leadership and health and social care by General Sir Gordon Messenger. Sajid Javid asked General Sir Gordon to look at leadership in the NHS. And and you'll remember, Liam, that I think we said at the time all these terrible stories about NHS we've been having. And most people were, I think, very happy to think that this ex-Royal Marine, former Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, who won the Distinguished Service Order not once but twice, was going to be set onto the NHS to look at this 
monstrous metastasizing cancer of managerialism. And unfortunately, as I described, the woker than woke report that he's come up with, which talked about, you know, very deeply sympathetic to all these thousands of NHS managers talking about the strain that they're working under. And I was actually thinking, what about the strain of the six and a half million people in the UK who are languishing on waiting lists, the strain of the taxpayer coughing up a huge national insurance increase so that more managers are brought on stream? And just as we're recording this, Liam, you know, I'm getting more and more by the hour now, more stuff from people within the NHS. This is from Sarah. What Alison wrote in the Daily Telegraph is spot on, but it underestimates the thousands of hours of work lost to mandatory attendance at equality and diversity sessions. All senior recruitments must now have a representative from local BAME, that's Black and Ethnic Minority, to ensure that the selected applicant shows allyship to BAME LGBTQI staff, huge increase in equality and diversity staff nationally at NHS England, and those that lost their jobs supposedly are in the main still in the NHS doing non-jobs at the same salary. So it's really terrible, Liam. Tell me what you think, because I was kind of boiling when I was writing it. Well, I think when it comes to this NHS inquiry, they seem to be shooting blanks. They seem to be firing without using live ammo. It did seem to really pull its punches to me. And at the same time, I also feel going back to what Molly and Liz were saying, this public inquiry into COVID that's coming down the track, this kind of overbearing statism, the terms of reference of that public inquiry We're only now seeing them finalised and the chair of the inquiry, Baroness Hallett, has written to the Prime Minister advising him that we need some changes into the scope of the public inquiry to include, i.e. they're not included at the moment, to include children and young people, including the impact on health, well-being and social care, education and early years provision, impacts on mental health and well-being of the UK population, collaboration between central government, devolved administrations and local authorities. I mean, if the original public inquiry terms of reference didn't include (laughs) those three massive things, you know, looking after kids, looking after everybody as a whole, and how central and local government did, I mean, what did it include? It's just mad. You can say exactly the same of the luckless General Sir Gordon Messenger's inquiry into NHS management, which didn't seem to actually raise the question about do we actually need all these tiers of management or why are there these endless gravy train reorganisations where a few people are chucked off the train, Liam, they get a few hundred grand to get off the train and then they rejoin the train at the next station. It is absolutely farcical and you do wonder, and in fact, I don't know if you saw it, But Peter Lilly, former highly respected trade minister in Margaret Thatcher's government, wrote an absolutely excoriating piece in the Sunday Telegraph saying that the final document had far more on equality, diversity and inclusion than on, you know, no mention of the bloody patients, of course. Who cares about those? It was presented by the government as a war on waste and wokery, and it was nothing of the kind. It's basically nothing to see here. Move along. Let's not shoot the messenger, Alison, (laughs) that this report... It was a bit of a damp squib. I think in this case, we need to revise. Let's certainly shoot the messenger. 
Now on to our listener emails. Please, please keep your wonderful messages coming. We absolutely love reading them and learn a lot from you. And as co-pilot Halligan will tell you, I often just pinch them and put them straight into my column. And very good they are too. Burglary is... <laughs> pinch. Creative adaptation is how we... You can't paste them into your column. <laughs> this is from Altec. I love this one. I recently filled in my self-assessment tax form and it asked me if I had any dependents. I replied, yes, 800,000 illegal immigrants, 12.4 million state pensioners, 1.3 million unemployable scroungers, 87,000 criminals in jail and 650 idiots in parliament. HMRC wrote back to me saying that my answer was not wholly acceptable. I replied, who did I miss out? (laughs) This one's from Dan. A retired army officer. Dear astronauts of acerbic analysis on the rocket of right thinking. So it's finally been revealed. The long-awaited forensic investigation into the NHS by the steely-eyed ex-Raw Marine General Messenger that we were hoping would be as unsubtle as a commando's knives in the ribs has hit the press. Or rather, it's wafted gently into the public domain with all the impact of a feather landing on a sheepskin rug. No devastating indictment of the lack of leadership, says Joe, that's reduced our national treasure to a national embarrassment in recent years. No deftly wielded scalpel cutting out the bloated management layers under the glare of an operating theatre spotlight. Not even a hint of an admission that perhaps, just maybe, something might need a gentle tweak to improve how this monster serves the millions that are in dire need of medical care. Reading between the lines, it seems that the NHS blob managed to hogtie the good general and spike his guns before his combat boots even landed on the beach. More a dead fish drifting onto the sand than a devastating assault with guns blazing. Your shift of focus from COVID chaos to the underlying cause of the NHS's decline and fall is a brilliant move and sorely needed. Galvanise yourselves into action co-pilots. Your country needs you. Good luck on your mission. Your loyal listeners will be 100% behind you. Dan, a retired army officer. Also on the same report, Peter says, It's hard to know who to criticise more, Sir Gordon Messenger for writing such waffle or Sajid Javid for approving it. Javid should have marked it 2 out of 10 and sent the general back to try again, or preferably find someone who's prepared to be blunt about the waste and unnecessary equality and diversity bureaucracy. The report is dreadful and reads as though it was written by the NHS managers. There is no real reference to the levels of management it addresses, no mention of the costs involved, no mention of comparisons with outside industry and no attempt to look for improvement. What is needed is a proper organisational plan to fight the war on ill health in the UK. Start with a clinical organisation needed to support the treatments per 100,000 people, then add in the bare minimum bureaucrats. We know how many cataract operations are done each year and we should set a realistic wait time of say four weeks we know how many knee replacements are required we know how many mri scanners are needed more edi management jobs will solve none of these sajid javid needs to stop shoveling money at the nhs and have someone target the money to specific areas and show positive results this one's from leonie i've just been in spain The government there is subsidising 10% of petrol and diesel prices at the pumps. You get 10% off the pump price, which the government pays to the petrol station. Surely that's better than a windfall tax. It puts money directly into the pockets of the consumer, 
And it feels great, says Leonie. Don't get me started on the taxes on our fuel, Halligan. This is from Richard. And Richard is responding to another piece I wrote in my Telegraph column about customer service. Richard says, press one to be insulted. Press two for an argument. Press three for passive aggression. (laughs) Press four to be accused of bullying and or abuse. Press five to be on hold for 45 minutes. Press six to be on hold for several hours and then hung up on. Press seven for someone who can barely speak English. Press eight for the wrong department. Press nine for a guaranteed heart attack or stroke. Press 10 for a heart attack or stroke in under 15 minutes. Additional charges may apply. (laughs) Press 11 for special customer service. Line no longer in use. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thank you, Richard. On that bombshell. That's it from Planet Normal for another week. Press 13 for a brilliant (laughs) podcast. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. Alison, what do you think? I think we should give the desirable Planet Normal mug to Dan for that fantastic military officer's analysis of the deficits of the Gordon Messenger report. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help others to find us so the wonderful Planet Normal family can grow. And do keep emailing us, particularly if your name is Dan, not his real name, the retired army officer. Dan, send us that email with mug winner in the subject heading and a Planet Normal mug will wing its way to you. We need your postal address as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 